Section 64 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. Chapter 19, The Eve of the Reformation, by Henry Charles Lee, Part 1. As the 16th century opened, Europe was standing unconscious on the brink of a crater, destined to change profoundly by its eruption the course of modern civilization the church had acquired so complete a control over the souls of men its venerable antiquity and its majestic organization so filled the imagination the services it had rendered seemed to call for such reverential gratitude and its acknowledged claim to interpret the will of god to men rendered obedience so plain a duty that the continuance of its power appeared to be an unchanging law of the universe destined to operate throughout the limitless future to understand the combination of forces which rent the domination of the church into fragments we must investigate in details its relations with society on the eve of the disruption and consider how it was regarded by the men of that day with their diverse grievances more or less justifying revolt we must here omit from consideration the benefits which the church had conferred and confine our attention to the antagonisms which it provoked and to the evils for which it was held responsible the interests and the motives at work were numerous and complex some of them dating back for centuries others comparatively recent but all of them growing in intensity with the development of political institutions and popular intelligence there has been a natural tendency to regard the reformation as solely a religious movement but this is an error in the curious theocracy which dominated the middle ages secular and spiritual interests became so inextricably intermingled that it is impossible wholly to disentangle them but the motives both remote and proximate which led to the lutheran revolt were largely secular rather than spiritual so far indeed as concerns our present purpose we may dismiss the religious changes incident to the reformation with the remark that they were not the object sought but the means for attaining that object the existing ecclesiastical system was the practical evolution of dogma and the overthrow of dogma was the only way to obtain permanent relief from the intolerable abuses of that system in primitive society the kingly and the priestly functions are commonly united the church and the state are one development leads to specialization the functions are divided and the struggle for supremacy like that between the brahman and kshatriya castes becomes inevitable in medieval europe this struggle was peculiarly intricate for in the conversion of the barbarians a strange religion was imposed by the conquered on the conquerors and the history of the relations between church and state thenceforth becomes a record of the efforts of the priestly class to acquire domination and of the military class to maintain its independence the former gradually won it had two enormous advantages for it virtually monopolized education and culture and through its democratic organization absorbed an undue share of the vigor and energy of successive generations by means of the career which it alone offered to those of lowly birth but lofty ambition when charles the great fostered the church as a civilizing agency he was careful to preserve his mastership 
but the anarchy attending the dissolution of the empire enabled the church to assert its pretensions as formulated in the false decretals and when the slow process of enlightenment again began in the eleventh century it had a most advantageous base of operations with the development of scholastic theology in the twelfth century its claims on the obedience of the faithful were reduced to a system under which the priest became the arbiter of the eternal destiny of man a power readily transmuted into control of his worldly fortunes by the use of excommunication and interdict during this period moreover the hierarchical organization was strengthened and the claims of the pope as the vicar of christ and as the supreme and irresponsible head of the church became more firmly established through the extension of its jurisdiction original and appellate the first half of the thirteenth century saw the power of these agencies fully developed when raymond of toulouse was humbled with fleshly arms and john of england with spiritual weapons and when the long rivalry of the papacy and empire was virtually ended with the extinction of the house of hohenstaufen the expression of the supremacy thus won is to be found in the gloss of innocent the fourth on the decretals and was proclaimed to the world by boniface the eighth in the bull unam sanctam this sovereignty was temporal as well as spiritual the power of the pope as the earthly representative of god was illimitable in official theory as expressed in the de principium regimine which passes under the name of st thomas aquinas declared the temporal jurisdiction of kings to be simply derived from the authority entrusted by christ to st peter and his successors whence it followed that the exercise of the royal authority was subject to papal control as matthew of vendome had already sung papa regit reges dominos dominatur acerbis principibus stabili jure jubere jubet the arguments of marsilio of padua intended to restore the imperial system of a church subordinate to the state were of some assistance to louis of bavaria in his long struggle with the papacy but at his death they virtually disappeared from view the councils of constance and basil were an effort on the part of the prelates and princes to limit the papal authority and if they had succeeded they would have rendered the church a constitutional monarchy in place of a despotism but the disastrous failure at basel greatly strengthened papal absolutism the superiority of councils over popes though it continued to be asserted by france in the pragmatic sanction of fourteen thirty eight and from time to time by germany gradually sank into an academic question and the popes were finally able to treat it with contempt in fourteen fifty nine at the congress of mantua pius the second in his speech to the french envoys took occasion to assert his irresponsible supremacy which could not be limited by general councils and to which all princes were subject in his extraordinary letter to mohammed the second then in the full flush of his conquests pius tempted the turk to embrace christianity with the promise to appoint him emperor of greece and of the east so that what he had won by force he might enjoy with justice if the pope could thus grant kingdoms he could also take them away george podiebrat king of bohemia committed the offence of insisting on the terms under which the hussites had been reconciled to the church by the fathers of basel 
whereupon Pius II in 1464 and Paul II in 1465 summoned him to Rome to stand his trial for heresy, and the latter, without awaiting the expiration of the terms assigned, declared him deprived of the royal power, released his subjects from their allegiance, and made over his kingdom to Matthias Corvinus of Hungary, with the result of a long and devastating war. Julius II, in his strife with France, gave the finishing blow to the little kingdom of Navarre by excommunicating in 1511 those children of perdition, Jean d'Albert and his wife Catherine, and empowering the first comer to seize their dominions, an act of piety for which the rapacious Ferdinand of Aragon had made all necessary preparations. In the bull of excommunication, Julius formally asserted his plenary power, granted by God over all nations and kingdoms, and this claim, amounting to a quasi-divinity, was sententiously expressed in one of the inscriptions at the consecration of Alexander VI in 1492. Cesare magna fuit, nun croma est maxima, sextus regnat Alexander, ille vir, iste Deus. While it is true that the extreme exercise of papal authority in making and unmaking kings was exceptional, still the unlimited jurisdiction claimed by the Holy See was irksome in many ways to the sovereigns of Europe, and as the time wore on and the secular authority became consolidated, it was endured with more and more impatience. There could be no hard and fast line of delimitation between the spiritual and the temporal, for the two were mutually interdependent, and the convenient phrase temporalia ad spiritualia ordinata was devised to define those temporal matters over which, as requisite to the due enjoyment of the spiritual, the Church claimed exclusive control. Moreover, it assumed the right to determine, in doubtful matters, the definition of this elastic term, and the secular ruler constantly found himself inconveniently limited in the exercise of his authority. The tension thence arising was increased by the happy device of legates and nuncios, by which the Holy See established in every country a representative, whose business it was to exercise supreme spiritual jurisdiction, and to maintain the claims of the Church, resulting in a divided sovereignty, at times exceedingly galling, and even incompatible with a well-ordered state. Rulers so orthodox as Ferdinand and Isabel asked the great National Council of Seville in 1478 how they could best prevent the residence of legates and nuncios, who not only carried much gold out of the kingdom, but interfered seriously with the royal preeminence. In this they only expressed the desires of the people, for the Estates of Castile, in 1480, asked the sovereigns to make some provision with respect to the nuncios who were of no benefit and only a source of evil. Another fruitful source of complaint, on the part not only of the rulers, but of the national churches, was the gradual extension of the claim of the Holy See to control all patronage. Innocent III has the credit of first systematically asserting this claim and exploiting it for the benefit of his cardinals and other officials. The practice increased, and in 1319, that John XXII assumed to himself the control of all prebends in every collegiate church, from the sale of which he gathered immense sums. Finally, the assertion was made that the Holy See owned all benefices 
and in the rules of the papal chanceries appear the prices to be charged for them, whether with or without cure of souls, showing that the traffic had become an established source of revenue. Even the rights of lay patrons and founders were disregarded, and in the provisions granted by the popes there was a special clause derogating their claims. Partly this patronage was used for direct profit, partly it was employed for the benefit of the cardinals and their retainers, on whom pluralities were heaped with unstinted hand, and the further refinement was introduced of granting to them pensions imposed on benefices and monastic foundations. Abbeys also were bestowed in commendam on titular abbots, who collected the revenues through stewards, with little heed to the maintenance of the inmates or the performance of the offices. In the eager desire to anticipate these profits of simony, vacancies were not awaited, and rights of succession, under the name of expectatives, were given or sold in advance. The deplorable results of this spiritual commerce were early apparent, and formed the subject of bitter lamentation and complaint, but to no purpose. In the thirteenth century, Bishop Grosteste and Saint-Louis assailed it in vigorous terms. In the fourteenth, Bishop Alvar Pelayo, a penitentiary of John Twenty Second, was equally fearless and unsparing in his denunciation. In 1385, Charles V of France asserted in an ordonnance that the cardinals had absorbed all the preferment in the kingdom, benefices, abbeys, orphanages, hospitals, etc., exacting revenue to the utmost, and leaving the institutions disabled and the fabric to fall into ruin. At the Council of Siena in 1423, the French prelates declared that all the benefices in France were sold by the curia, so that the churches were reduced to desolation. In 1475, the abbot of abbots of the great Cistercian order complained that all the abbeys in France were held in commendam, and consequently were laid waste. England, in self-defence, had enacted, in the 14th century, the Statutes of Provisors in Primenuiri, while in 1438 France protected herself with the pragmatic sanction. But other nations lacked the strength or the resolution to do likewise, and the resultant irritation continued to grow ominously. In Spain, which refused to throw off the yoke as late as 1547, the primate Siliceo of Toledo asserted in a memorial to Charles V that there were in Rome five or six thousand Spaniards engaged in bargaining for benefices, quote, such being for our sins the present custom, end quote. and he added that in every cathedral chapter in the land the majority of canons had been either hostlers in Rome or traders in benefices who scarce knew grammar enough to read their hours. In this absorption of patronage, the feature most provocative of friction with the sovereigns was the claim gradually advanced to nominate bishops. For these prelates were mostly temporal lords of no little influence, and in the political schemes of the papacy the character of its nominees might well create uneasiness in the state. Quarrels over the exercise of their power were of frequent occurrence. Venice, for instance, which was chronically in open or concealed hostility to Rome, was very sensitive as to the fidelity of its acquisitions on the mainland, where a bishop who was the agent of an enemy might be the source of infinite mischief. Thus, in 1485, there was a struggle over the vacant see of Padua, 
in which Venice triumphed by sequestrating other revenues of Cardinal Michel, appointed by Innocent VIII. Again, in 1491, a contest arose over the Patriarchate of Aquileia, the primatial see of Venetia, resulting in the exile of the celebrated humanist Ermolao Barbaro, on whom Innocent had bestowed it, and the see remained vacant until Alexander VI accepted Niccolò Donato, the Venetian nominee. In 1505, Julius II refused to confirm a bishop appointed by the Signoria to the see of Cremona, as he designed the place for his favorite nephew, Galotteo della Rovere. He held out for two years, and finally compromised for a money payment to the cardinal. So, when the latter died in 1508, Venice filled his see of Vicenza with Jacopo Dandolo, while Julius gave it to another nephew, Sistogara della Rovere, and the unseemly contest over the bishopric lasted for years. Matters were scarce better between the Holy See and its crusader, Matthias Corvinus. A serious breach was occasioned in 1465 by the effort of Paul II to enforce his claims, but Matthias took a position so aggressive that finally Sixtus IV conceded the point and confirmed his appointments. The quarrel was renewed in 1480 over the See of Modrus, which Sixtus wanted for a retainer of his nephew, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, the king told Sixtus that Hungary, in her customary spirit, would rather, for a third time, cut herself loose from the Catholic Church and go over to the infidel than permit the benefices of the land to be appropriated in violation of the royal right of presentation. But after holding out for three years, he submitted. He was more successful in 1485, when he gave the archbishopric of Gran to Ippolito d'Este, who was a youth under age, and when Innocent VIII remonstrated, he retorted that the Pope had granted such favours to many less worthy persons. Any person appointed by the Pope might bear the title, but Ippolito should enjoy the revenues. He carried his point, and in 1487 Ippolito took possession. Spain was still less patient. Even under so weak a monarch as Henry IV, Sixtus failed to secure for his worthless nephew, Cardinal Piero Riario, the Archbishopric of Seville, which fell vacant in 1473 through the death of Alfonso de Fonseca. Although he had been regularly appointed, the Spaniards refused to receive Riario, and the see was administered by Pero Gonzalo Mendoza, Bishop of Siguenza, until 1482, when it was filled by Inigo Malnique. The stronger and abler Ferdinand of Aragon was even more recalcitrant. He adopted the most arbitrary measures to secure the Archbishopric of Saragossa for his natural son, Alfonso, against Ausias Despuch, the nominee of Sixtus IV. Still more decisive was the struggle in Castile over the See of Cuenca in 1482, to which Sixtus appointed a Genoese cousin. Ferdinand and Isabel demanded that Spanish bishoprics should be filled only with Spaniards of their selection to which Sixtus replied that all benefices were in the gift of the Pope, and that his power, derived from Christ, was unlimited. The sovereigns answered by calling home all their subjects resident at the papal court, and threatening to take steps for the convocation of a general council. This brought Sixtus to terms. He sent a special nuncio to Spain, but they refused to receive him, and stood on their dignity until Cardinal Mendoza, then Archbishop of Toledo, intervened, when, on Sixtus withdrawing his pretensions, they allowed themselves to be reconciled. 
Ferdinand and his successor, Charles V, displayed the same vigour in resisting the encroachments of the cardinals when they seized upon vacant abbacies, which happened to belong to the patronage of the crown. It marks the abasement to which the Holy Roman Empire had fallen, when we hear that Sixtus confirmed to Frederick III and his son Maximilian a privilege granted by Eugenius IV to nominate to the sees of Brixen, Trent, Gurk, Trieste, Quair, Vienna, and Wienerich Neustadt, adding thereto the presentation to three hundred benefices. These cases have a double interest as illustrating the growing tension between the Holy See and secular potentates, and the increasing disposition to meet its claims with scant measure of respect. It was constantly arrogating to itself enlarged prerogatives, and the sovereigns were less and less inclined to submission. But whether exercised by king or pope, the distribution of ecclesiastical patronage had become simple jobbery, to reward dependence or to gain pecuniary or political advantage, without regard to the character of the incumbent or the sacred duties of the office. These evils were aggravated by habitual and extravagant pluralism, of which the Holy See set an example eagerly imitated by the sovereigns. Bishoprics and benefices were showered upon the cardinals and their retainers, and upon the favourites of the popes in all parts of Europe, whose revenues were drawn to Rome, to the impoverishment of each locality, while the functions for which the revenues had been granted remained for the most part unperformed to the irritation of the populations. Rodrigo Borgia, subsequently Alexander the Sixth, created cardinal in his youth by his uncle Calixtus III, accumulated benefices to the aggregate of 70,000 ducats a year. Giuliano della Rovere, Julius II, likewise owed his cardinalate to his uncle Sixtus IV, who bestowed on him also the archbishopric of Avignon and the bishoprics of Bologna, Lausanne, Coutances, Vivières, Mende, Ostia, and Velletri, with the abbeys of Nonantola and Grotta Ferrata. Another cardinal nephew of Sixtus was Piero Riario, who held a crowd of bishoprics yielding him 60,000 ducats a year, which he lavished in shameless excesses, dying deeply in debt. But this abuse was not confined to Rome. A notable example is that of Jean, son of René II, Duke of Lorraine. Born in 1498, he was, in 1501, appointed coadjutor to his uncle Henri, Bishop of Metz, after whose death, in 1505, Jean took possession in 1508 and held the see until 1529. He then resigned it in favour of his nephew Nicolas, aged four, but reserved the revenues and right of resumption in case of death and resignation. In 1517 he became the Bishop of Toul, and in 1518 of Terouanne, besides obtaining the cardinalate. In 1521 he added the sees of Valence and Die, in 1523 that of Verdun. Then followed the three archbishoprics of Narbonne, Rheims, and Lyon, in 1524, 1533, and 1537. In 1538 he obtained the see of Albi, soon afterwards that of Masson, in 1541 that of Agen, and in 1542 that of Nantes. In addition he held the abbeys of Gorse, Fécon, Cluny, Marmoutier, Saint-Ouen, Saint-Jean-de-Laon, Saint-Germain, Saint-Médard of Soissons, and saint mansu of Toul. 
The See of Verdun he resigned to his nephew Nicola on the same terms as that of Metz, and when the latter, in 1548, abdicated in order to marry Marguerite d'Egmont, he resumed them both. The Archbishopric of Rennes he resigned in 1538 in favour of his nephew Charles, and Lyon he abandoned in 1539. In spite of the enormous revenues derived from these scandalous pluralities, his extravagance kept him always poor, and we can imagine the condition, spiritual and temporal, of the churches and abbeys thus consigned to the negligence of a worldly prelate whose life was spent in courts. It was bad enough when these pluralists employed coadjutors to look after their numerous prelacies, but worse when they farmed them out to the highest bidder. Another ecclesiastical abuse severely felt by all sovereigns who were jealous of their jurisdiction and earnest in enforcing justice was the exemption enjoyed by all ranks of the clergy from the authority of the secular tribunals. They were justiciable only by the spiritual courts, which could pronounce no judgment of blood, and whose leniency towards clerical offenders virtually assured to them immunity from punishment, an immunity long maintained in English jurisprudence under the well-known name of benefit of clergy. So complete was the freedom of the priesthood from all responsibility to secular authority, that the ingenuity of the doctors was taxed to find excuses for the banishment of Abiatar by Solomon. The evil of this consisted not only in the temptation to crime, which it offered to those regularly bred to the church and performing its functions, but it attracted to the lower orders of the clergy, which were not bound to celibacy or debarred from worldly pursuits, numberless criminals and vagabonds, who were thus enabled to set the officers of justice at defiance. The first defense of a thief or assassin, when arrested, was to claim that he belonged to the church and to display his tonsure, and the episcopal officials were vigilant in the defense of these wretches, thus stimulating crime and grievously impeding the administration of justice. Frequent efforts were made by the secular authorities to remedy these evils, but the church resolutely maintained its prerogatives, provoking quarrels which led to increased antagonism between the laity and the clergy. The gravamina of the German nation, adopted by the Diet of Nuremberg in 1522, stated no more than the truth in asserting that the clerical immunity was responsible for countless cases of adultery, robbery, coining, arson, homicide, and false witness committed by ecclesiastics. And there was peculiar significance in the declaration that, unless the clergy were subjected to the secular courts, there was reason to fear an uprising of the people, for no justice was to be had against a clerical offender in the spiritual tribunals. Venice was peculiarly sensitive as to this interference with social order, and it is well known how her insistence on her right to enforce the laws on all offenders led to the prolonged rupture between the Republic and Paul V in the early years of the 17th century. It was a special concession to her when, in 1474, Sixtus IV admitted that, in view of the numerous clerical counterfeiters and state criminals, such offenders might be tried by secular process, with the assistance, however, of the vicar of the Patriarch of Aquileia. The extent of the abuse is indicated by an order of Leo X in 1514 to the governor of Ascoli, 
authorizing him, for the sake of the peace of the community, to hand over to the secular courts all criminal married clerks who did not wear vestment and tonsure. What exasperating use could be made of this clerical privilege was shown in 1478 in the Florentine conspiracy of the Pazzi, which was engineered, with the privity of Sixtus IV, by his nephew Girolamo Riario. The assassins were two clerks, Stefano da Bagnoni and Antonio Maffei. They succeeded in killing Giuliano de' Medici and wounding Lorenzo during the mass, thus adding sacrilege to murder, while Salviati, Archbishop of Pisa, was endeavouring to seize the palace of the Signoria. The enraged populace promptly hanged Salviati, the two assassins were put to death, and Cardinal Raffaele Sansoni Riario, another papal nephew, who was suspiciously in Florence as the guest of the Pazzi, was imprisoned. Sixtus had the effrontery to complain loudly of the violation of the liberties of the Church, and to demand of Florence satisfaction, including the banishment of Lorenzo. The Cardinal was liberated after a few weeks, during which he was detained as a hostage for the Florentines who were in Rome. But this did not appease Sixtus. He laid Florence under an interdict, which was not observed, and a local council was assembled, which issued a manifesto denouncing the Pope as a servant of adulterers and a vicar of Satan, and praying God to liberate his church from a pastor who was a ravening wolf in sheep's clothing. The pretensions of the church were evidently becoming unendurable to the advancing intelligence of the age. It was forfeiting human respect and there was a dangerous tendency abroad to treat it as a secular institution, devoid of all special claim to reverence. This was not the only manner in which the papacy interfered with secular justice, for towards the end of the fifteenth century the papal jurisdiction spread its edges over the crimes of the laity as well as of the clergy. Since the early thirteenth century the papal penitentiary had been accustomed to administer absolution, in the forum of conscience to all applicants in the fourteenth this came to be a source of profit to the curia by reason of the graduated scale of fees demanded and the imposition of so-called pecuniary penance by which the sinner purchased pardon of his sins when the castilian inquisition began its operation in fourteen eighty one the new christians as the jewish converts were called hurried in crowds to rome where they had no difficulty in obtaining from the penitentiary absolution for whatever heretical crimes they might have committed, and they then claimed that this exempted them from subsequent inquisitorial persecution. Even those who had been condemned were able to procure for a consideration letters setting aside the sentence and rehabilitating them. It was no part of the policy of Ferdinand and Isabel to allow impunity to be thus easily gained by the apostates, or to forego the abundant confiscation flowing into the royal treasury, and therefore they refused to admit that such papal briefs were valid without the royal approval. Sixtus, on his part, was not content to lose the lucrative business arising from Spanish intolerance, and in 1484, by the constitution Quoniam non nulli, he refuted the assertion that his briefs were valid only in the forum conscientiae and not in the forum contentiosum, and ordered them to be received as absolute authority in all courts, secular as well as ecclesiastical. This was asserting an appellate jurisdiction over all the criminal tribunals of Christendom, 
and through the notorious venality of the curia where these letters of absolution could always be had for a price it was a serious blow to the administration of justice everywhere not content with this the power was delegated to the peripatetic vendors of indulgences who thus carried impunity for crime to every man's door the saint peter's indulgences sold by tetzel and his colleagues were of this character and not only released the purchasers from all spiritual penalties but forbade all secular or criminal prosecution these monstrous pretensions were reiterated by paul the third in fifteen forty nine and by julius the third in fifteen fifty it was impossible for secular rulers tamely to submit to this sale of impunity for crime in Spain, the struggle against it continued with equal obstinacy on each side, and it was fortunate that the Reformation came to prevent the Holy See from rendering all justice, human and divine, a commodity to be sold in open market. There was another of the so-called liberties of the Church which brought it into collision with temporal princes, the exemption from taxation of all ecclesiastical property so vigorously proclaimed by boniface the eighth in the bull clericis laicos although under pressure from philip the fair this declaration was annulled by the council of vienne the principle remained unaffected the piety of successive generations had brought so large a portion of the wealth of europe estimated at fully one-third into the hands of the church that the secular power was becoming more and more disinclined to exempt it from the burdens of the state under paul the second fourteen sixty four to fourteen seventy one the endeavours of venice and of florence to subject such property to taxation were the cause of serious and prolonged difficulties with rome in fact the relations between the papacy and the sovereigns of europe were becoming more and more strained in every way as the transformation took place from the feudal institutions of the middle ages to the monarchical absolutism of the modern era the nationalities were becoming organized save in germany with a consciousness of unity that they had never before possessed and with new aims and aspirations necessitating settled lines of policy less and less they felt themselves mere portions of the great christian commonwealth under the supreme guidance of the vicar of christ and less and less were they inclined to submit to his commands or to permit his interference with their affairs in fourteen sixty four louis the eleventh forbade the publication of papal bulls until they should be submitted to him and receive the royal exequatur spain followed his example and this became the settled policy of all sovereigns able to assert their independence. End of section 64